Hi, and welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Today, in honor of my guest, who you'll meet in a minute, we begin with a poem. It's called Stop It. When did we decide that ideology should be allowed to trump common sense, common decency, common colds, uncommon but not unexpected pandemics? Don't give me any crap about it not really being a decision that this is what inevitably happens over time, a Darwinian joke. What happens over time are uncountable decisions, self-aware, thoughtful, intentional, self-serving, thoughtless, habitual. Decisions, nevertheless, ours, yours, congealing into acts, corporate and individual, simple and complex, interwoven, interdependent, feeding off each other, living that Darwinian joke, now viewed as gospel, as if this is behavior that is built into our DNA, or it is the law, or tradition, or the will of God, or just one of those things, you know. Stop it. Say it like your mother used to say it. Stop it now. Then do it. Stop long enough to think, to decide if that's the way we ought to act. It is, after all, only ideology, not truth. Russ Willis, welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. We've known each other for a long time. In fact, we discovered not all that long ago that you and I went to the same elementary school, James Fannin, in Midland, Texas. How often does that happen? Anyway, your personal and professional story is about as nonlinear as mine is. When I met you, you were the provost of a local college, and I was on their board of trustees. Today, after a lot of curves in the road, you list yourself as, among other things, an ethicist, a technologist, a pastor, and a poet. So, Russ, tell me a story. As you know, in, in our parents' age, uh, those uh, questions usually ended up being a very linear discussion. I started with this company when I was 18, and when I was 22, I went to here in this company, and I retired from this company after so many years. I returned to the company after retirement and volunteered, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that is not my story. It's increasingly not the story of many people, but it's certainly not my story. I went to college thinking I was going to be a corporate lawyer. But I was also fascinated with engineering, so I was in a program that allowed me to take the early courses in engineering, electrical engineering, and fell in love with that. Got a double major in four years, one in management systems, which is part business and part engineering, and the other was a BS in electrical engineering. Went to work for Texas Instruments right out of college and went to work for the military products department of the semiconductor division. So at that time, uh, TI was the second largest maker of digital electronics, which were brand new at that time. Uh, the time I am talking about was the uh, year that the PC was first marketed by IBM. The uh, four-function calculator had come out my freshman year in high school. So that both dates me, but also tells you what's going on in the world. So I went to work as a marketing engineer for Texas Instruments for two years. I loved it. I did a, another master's degree in the meantime, part-time, in operations research. 
the short version of that very long story is I got more interested in the things that were happening in my job that were ethical or sociological than technical. Well, I had never taken an ethics course. I had never taken a philosophy course. I had never taken a sociology course. So in looking at and talking to people about, well, how would I get prepared to teach ethics, I realized that I needed some remedial work in those fields. And I was a Christian and um, in Dallas, where I was at the time, where Texas Instruments' main um, plant is, uh, was a Methodist seminary at SMU, which is where I got my other degrees. And so I decided to go ahead and get a seminary degree, which would allow me to focus on ethical questions in preparation for doing a PhD. So I did that. And then ended up at Emory University and did my PhD in Atlanta, Georgia. In the meantime, through all of that, fell in love with a uh, choral conductor who ended up going to Arizona State to do her doctoral work. Needless to say, I, I unwound this um, degree in ethics and society and started teaching as she was finding jobs. So we were uh, a dual college teacher um, family. So we spent the first 15 years of our marriage doing three years at a time at colleges, universities. One of us get the job, the other work it in. Most of the jobs I worked myself into were social science jobs. Those were the ones that were more likely to be open, and I taught ethics or religious studies on the side. So what is an ethicist? Actually, let's get even more basic than that. What are ethics? The two terms are ethics and morality. Morality is whether you're good or bad. Morality is did you do the right thing or the wrong thing. Ethics is our understanding of what is right and wrong. It is the way cultures and individuals describe being moral. And so to some degree it's the study of, but it's also the understanding of the moral life. I can be a very good ethicist and be a very bad person. I can't be a good moralist and be a bad person. <laughs> because being, being moral, you're either moral or immoral. But there's no ethical or unethical. Well, there is unethical, but unethical means you're not following your own principles. So unethical would be you say it's wrong to do this, but then you ignore that. A willful ignorance is unethical. It's also immoral, but it's unethical. So ethics is, is how you understand the moral life. So how did you become a poet? I mean, is this something that you've done for a long time, or is this more of a calling that you landed on somewhat recently? That's a very interesting story, and in fact, I'm, I'm writing a book about that right now called Emergent. What I discovered was, for some reason, in 2004, I was given or I bought a journal. And I know it was in 2004 because on the first page of the journal, there's an uh, inscription with the date that is... 2004. I also know that the next page is labeled 2007, so I didn't do a lot with that journal. But at some point, basically in 2007, for whatever reason, I picked up the journal. It was never meant to be a diary. Um, I had a travel journal separately, which I didn't do much with, but it was clearly to, to to talk about some travels in Europe that we did. But this was something that somebody thought I needed to have or I needed to have. And 
a couple of nights in 2007, I started writing poems. I don't remember a decision to write a poem. The first poem I wrote was A Train at Night, and it was because I was listening to A Train at Night. And I thought, that was an interesting experience. I'm just going to write that down. My journal happened to be there for some reason. And it came out as a poem. And I thought, well, that's sort of cool. So before I went back to sleep, I wrote another poem. And then the next day, I read those two and thought, you know, that's pretty cool. So I wrote another one. Then I didn't write another one for four more years. So over a period of 2007 to 2018, I wrote 16 poems. I wrote them by hand, and I decided to transcribe them into uh, Word just so I would have them. The first decision was not to be a poet. The first decision was to capture those poems and to, to give them one layer of polish. I've discovered that I can't help. I don't just transcribe. In fact, in my journals, what I write is transcribed and edited and the date because I always edit something. Now, some of my poems in the handwritten are scratched out, and there's arrows, and they go over five or six pages. Some of them are pristine. I might have one scratch out, and then I look at what I transcribed, and it's almost word for word. So some of them come out ready to go. Some of them never make it to transcription. Some of them don't even make it to line three in the journal. But I discovered in 2018 that I liked the poetry I had been writing. And I wanted to see if anybody else liked it. Up until that point, my wife was the only other person who read any of it. But I also thought, I need to get better at it if I'm going to let people see it. So I started writing, uh, in essence, in March of 2018. Uh, since then, I've written 660 poems. So it took whatever it was. In grad school... I was getting ready for Publisher Parish, so I wrote a couple of articles for the journal, the student journal. And somebody once said, hey, we need some poetry. Hey, Willis, will you write a poem? I said, sure. And so from 1981 to 2019, I never published another poem. But in the 2nd of January 2019, my first three poems were published by The Right Launch, an online, uh, fairly new at that time, um, online journal. Um, I've published with them several times since then. I've got, as of this week, 80 poems published. But I discovered I enjoyed the poetry, but it, it became the way for me to think about things. Social justice, a nice spring day, the cemetery behind my office in February, uh, a sunset, having been married 40 years. You know, it really didn't matter what it was, but poetry was a vessel for it. Long answer, but that's, that's, that's what it means for me to be a poet. We had a long conversation the other day, as you'll recall, over coffee, during which we talked about the changes that we've seen in American and perhaps global society. One thing stood out about that conversation, and that is our shared belief that we're kind of watching the decline of community or village behavior and the rise of tribal behavior in this country. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, is it cultural, generational, economic, all of the above? There is, I think, some, some common answers to all those. And one is 
the not so much that we're changing from living in a village to living as a tribe, but where village and tribe function in our uh, in our world. So let me unpack village and tribe real quick. For me, village is defined by the state of well-being of the villagers. A village is surviving or thriving. And everything about it is helping each other survive or providing the context to thrive. And so when you define what the roles within a village are, you're always going back to well-being. In most cultures, uncles are all the males of a certain generation who provide for the village. It doesn't matter if they're blood uncles. It doesn't matter if they're the top uncle or the bottom uncle, but they are defined by we're the caretakers. The ants are those who have already been mothers and are now mothering the village. They're not just mothering their own children. The elders are not just the old people. They're the ones that provide the insight to the rest of them to figure out how to survive or thrive. And everybody else is just surviving or thriving, but they're a farmer or they're the tradesman. And so you're really defined by your role in the village and how well you provide for survival or thrival. And what about a tribe? A tribe is defined by some trait or belief. A tribe is often a a blood trait. You're all defined by our DNA or our skin color or our geography. Therefore, village and tribe often intersect because one of the things a village has is a geography, as a place. But what tribe does is says, this particular characteristic gives you authority within this place. Whereas the village says you have authority in this place because of your age or because of your role. A great example is that for most of human history, the chief may have been a quasi-hereditary piece, but in most villages they were also tribes and therefore they were all part of the same DNA, so almost anybody could have been a chief because they would have still been of the bloodline. But if you really look at it, what we've discovered is that the chief was the one who was best at surviving or thriving. And as long as you did that, you were the chief. And the only reason to depose you as the chief is we weren't surviving anymore. Whereas in the tribe, you then create those hierarchies of, of identity. You have the blackest skin or the whitest skin, or you have, you're the tallest, or you're the smartest. Then a meritocracy develops, and then a hierarchy. And so tribes tend to be hierarchical, um, more vertical. Villages tend to be more horizontal. So those kind of images start to emerge when you start to unpack this stuff. So what do you see as the set of forces that began to create this migration, for lack of a better term, from village to tribe? So what I would suggest is one of the characteristics of the movement through the 20th century is that technology drove us out of our villages, allowed us to 
go beyond our villages and create new villages, which were made up of more than one tribe most often. And so the village equals tribe, which had been, for the most part, what most human beings experienced as long as there have been human beings. In the past two centuries, starting with the Industrial Revolution and the geographic and mobility, is that tribe and village started not being identical and that new villages were being created with multiple tribes. And then politics has developed on, well, what the hell do we do with that? It's to some degree much more straightforward when tribe equals village. They've always been different, but they've always, almost always coexisted almost perfectly. And then you look at, well, the Genghis Khans, the, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, what, what was that? That was one set of villages expanding to other villages and said, our tribe is better than your tribe. It's obviously better because we won the war. Well, now the 19th and 20th centuries and now the 21st century is we're together and inter interwoven, but it's not clear who's winning the war. <laughs> and a lot of it isn't due to war. It's due to the economics or it's due to migration or it's due to various other kinds of things. So now that it's not clear that village equals tribe, what do we do with our tribalism? Because so many of our laws and so many of our, our traditions and so many of the ways that we think ethically were sort of based on this village equals tribe model. Well, if village doesn't equal tribe, what does that mean? And that's what we're struggling with. Okay, but how does it manifest itself? I guess what I mean is, as we move from village to tribe as a mindset or a mentality or a philosophy or whatever term applies, what do we see happening in society? In its worst case, I think it's when we choose tribe over village. What do we do with our tribal concepts in a village of many, many different tribes of increasingly unequal resources and status. The other explanatory piece of this is when tribe equals village, traditions and laws and mores all tend to be shared pretty equally. So it's pretty clear who fits and who doesn't and why they fit and who should be punished and who shouldn't, et cetera, et cetera. That's really interesting. Thanks. Another topic that we spoke about when we got together for coffee is the extent to which we've allowed ourselves to become a society that defines people by shallow labels that we sort of stick on their foreheads rather than by whether they're a kind and decent person, a good parent, an active community member, I don't know, a caring spouse, and so on. What do you think has allowed that to happen? When it gets complicated, what do we as human beings try to do? We try to uncomplicate it. If you want to know what the problem with this tribe and village imbalance is that we tend to be one-dimensional in our thinking. We tend to be reductionists. We want to have a single answer. You've heard of black and white thinking. That's natural. That's, that is, and that is a survival. I think, I think that's part of our fight or flight. Of the, when our fight or flight is triggered, it's when it's not white anymore, it's black. Oh, it's not safe anymore, it's unsafe. Oh, that's not a friend, that's a foe. And when we get to that point, there's only one option, fight or flight. But it's because you've already reduced it to, I can't talk anymore, 
There's no argument to be had. I can't buy my way out of this. I've got to fight or flight. And, that, and that's just natural to human beings. Our better angels are the ones that whisper, but. I remember when we were talking about this, you brought up one of your favorite movies, Fiddler on the Roof, and how you believe that the main character, Tevya, is sort of the perfect ethicist. His method of ethics is my method of ethics, and that is, on the one hand, tradition tells us da-da-da-da. Obviously, it's right to never lie. But on the other hand, and Tevya is always going to the other hand. And what we discover in Fiddler on the Roof and Tevya, and I think in life, is there's almost always another hand. And it's when we go, on the one hand, other hand. On the one hand, tradition says this. On the other hand, my daughter's miserable. On the one hand, we're taught that this is the things we ought to love. On the other hand, these two people are in love. And so for me, it's easy when you're on the, the one hand. All you have to do is know what the tradition is. All you have to know is what the rule is. And for, for the most part, that's what we do. There's a cost to not following the rules. On the other hand, sometimes the rules don't work to lead to a good solution. They don't, they don't do the village thing. The tribal thing is, that's the answer, and this is the person that's going to put you in jail if you don't do it. The village thing is, we've always done it this way, but we're starving to death now. Why? Because the river's dried up which means we have to move, <laughs> or, or whatever it is. And so I think we've become trapped in one-dimensional thinking, and it starts with polarization. If we can polarize everything, right, wrong, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, white, black, American, foreigner, then that allows us to have a one-dimensional answer. A one-dimensional answer that now finds its way into politics. In politics, that becomes a single-issue vote. You could have Barry Goldwater and Donald Trump, who happen to agree on abortion and not on anything else, and every Republican will vote for both of them. Well, I can't think of two diff more different political systems. And yet, if you use that single criteria for voting, on the left, it's choice or inclusion or something. Everything becomes a single issue. And if you can find a politician that believes that, you vote for him no matter what else they believe. And I think that's the consequence of tribalism. First polarization, trying to reduce everything to at least the simple polls, and then single issue voting. Okay, so how do we fix it? I mean, how do we get people to set aside the dogma of politics, the attraction of simple answers, this increasingly ugly kind of binary nature of the world today, and re-engage as members of a society who want to do the right thing as defined by moral values instead of political and social media-induced fear-mongering? The simple answer is act like a village instead of a tribe, which means solve the problems don't identify with the traits. If you start everything by who's black and who's white, or who's American and who's not, or who's first generation American and who's not, or who's second generation and who's not, who's rich and who's not, then that opens up the polarization and the choice of, of a black and white answer. But if you act as a village and you say, we've got this problem, to some degree it really doesn't matter it's either caused by humans or not. The political element doesn't matter. What matters is solving that problem. 
So I think the way to get out of it is to solve problems. You know, during our conversation, we talked about Jacques Ellul and his thoughts on the philosophy of technology. I think his work comes into play here. Uh, He wrote some books back in the middle of the 20th century that were basically saying that technology was the source of political power, that technology was taking over our choices and rendering us choiceless, that the choices we have to make. And if you look at what people do, most people feel like they don't have the choice but to have their phone everywhere. Well, it really is a choice, but we act as if there's not a choice. But one of the things that Jacques Ellul said is, think globally, act locally. And he said it enough that it gets on posters now. So every once in a while, you know, Google it, and you'll see that a lot of people take credit for that. But I think that's another way of saying what I'm saying. Get a big picture, travel, understand, be educated, be well-read, and then apply that to some local thing where you have to, to work with others to get a solution. And because our tribes have so broken down, we're likely to be across the table from somebody who's from a different tribe. And simply don't let that stop you from solving the problem. Don't try to control who's around the table. Don't try to control who brings their toolboxes. Don't try to control your neighbors, who's your neighbor. But if you've got a neighborhood problem, get with your neighbors and solve the problem. I think that's really the only way out. Now, why that works is you start talking to each other. You have to compromise. Politics is a very bad word now because it's not doing what it's supposed to do. Politics is really all about compromise. That is what politics is. Russell, we could talk about this stuff all day long and well into the night, and we probably will, but let's stop here. Before we go, though, how about one more poem? I'd like it if you were to read A Train at Night because I happen to love trains. Before you hear the whistle, your ear feels. The rumble separates itself from ambient sound. Mind recognizes train when the rumble changes pitch. Locomotives struggle in tandem to pull up grade or stagger as consist plows forward. Heart recognizes train when the whistle blows. Such a sound. The noise longing to be gone makes. The noise wishing she was here makes. The noise the past makes for all those old enough to know trains. The noise the unknown makes for those just coming to know trains. Silence seems at first to follow the whistle, but it is not true. For what follows the whistle is what follows the power first felt by the ear, the train's heartbeat, Constant, consistent, two beats, a pause, two beats, a pause, two beats, a pause, two beats, two beats, two beats, two beats. A rhythm to rock a child asleep, a rhythm to whisper a song, a reason to count the cars that pass, a reason to forget what you were fretting about before your ear felt the coming train. No matter the length of the train, this goes on and on, interrupted maybe once, maybe more, by a dying whistle, to the point where your ear feels no more. But your mind and heart long for the pulse to never die away. Love for the rocking child, echoes of that whispered song, 
fretting you forgot to do while a plan fretting you forgot to do while a train passed in the night. Russ Willis, poet, ethicist, pastor, technologist, writer, educator. Thank you, Russ, for dropping by. Folks, if you'd like to hear more poetry and discover where the poems in this episode were first published, please visit rewilliswrites.com or just search for Russ Willis, poet. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Take good care. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.